Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Operation Anthropoid and the assassination of Reinhard Heydrich. Now let's continue with our story about Operation Anthropoid. Although they had been up since dawn, Gobchik and Kubish had taken a long tram ride and bicycled the rest of the way to their vantage point at Holesevicha. Both carried beat-up attaché cases, their weapons concealed by packed grass that would at least dispel any cursory search. Food was so scarce that the population had started raising rabbits, fed with grass harvested from public places. The attachés filled with vegetation would not have seemed unusual, and under the cover of a borrowed raincoat, Gobchik quickly assembled the three parts of his Sten gun. Then he proceeded to the vicinity of a nearby tram stop, where he waited, raincoat draped over his weapon. Kubish positioned himself across the street, a few yards further down the road, partially concealed by a lamppost and some shade trees. As the rush hour traffic dissipated, Gobchik and Kubish realized that their loitering might attract attention at any moment, or even worse, perhaps Heydrich, for whatever reason, had changed his route. These tense moments of frustration and second-guessing were finally interrupted by the flicker of Volchik's mirror. Gobchik strode quickly across the street to position himself at the sharpest point of the curve. Kubish opened his attaché and extracted a grenade. Just then a tram began making its way from the direction of the bridge, inadvertently timing its arrival at the tram stop at about the same time as Heydrich's car would reach the intersection. Gobchik and Kubish already had decided that regardless of any such situation, they would not hesitate despite the potential for collateral damage. Like clockwork, Oberscharfuhrer Klein slowed to a veritable stop to make the turn, and Gobchik dropped his raincoat, stepped off the curb, aimed his submachine gun directly at Heydrich, and pressed the trigger. Nothing happened. Either because of improper assembly or grass stuck in the weapon, the gun misfired. Both Klein and Heydrich immediately focused on the now helpless Gobchik, and instead of speeding away from any danger, the Reich's protector screamed for his driver to stop the car, both occupants of the vehicle drawing their service revolvers, intent on shooting it out with what they believed to be a lone assassin. But Kubish had also approached the car undetected 
and he hurled the grenade towards the open interior of the vehicle. He missed badly, the device skittering against the rear right tire and exploding against the side and undercarriage of the Mercedes. Although inaccurate, the blast was intense enough to shatter the tram's windows and send shrapnel into a group of passengers exiting the streetcar. It also momentarily stunned both Heydrich and Klein, but as the force and noise receded, both Germans leapt out of the car, Heydrich chasing in the direction of Gobchik and Klein after Kubisch. Kubisch was able to retrieve his bicycle and escape relatively easily, Klein unable to even attempt to shoot him, his gun also jamming. Quickly, the commando was able to make his way into the center of town to a safe house and a change of clothes, his damaged, blood-stained bicycle hidden away. With Heydrich in pursuit, Gobchik had to abandon his bicycle and run uphill. He had dropped the Sten gun, but was able to get off a few pistol shots, which forced Heydrich to take cover. Gobchik noticing that his pursuer seemed unsteady on his feet. Perhaps he had hit his target, but he had no time to lose. He made it to the top of the hill, ran down a side street, and raced into a butcher shop, shouting that he needed help escaping from Nazis. Unfortunately, the owner of the store was an ethnic German who ran into the street and saw Klein feverishly looking for the fugitive. The man signaled to the German driver, and just as Gobchik figured out that there was no rear exit to the shop, Klein came racing through the doorway, practically colliding with a parachutist. Klein's gun was still jammed, but this time Gobchik shot him in the leg, the SS man falling to the ground. The proprietor wanted no part of any additional intervention, and Gobchik also was able to reach another safe house on foot. Although momentarily safe but believing their mission had failed, both men were deeply disappointed, especially Gobchik, who was only a few feet away from the intended target. Unbeknownst to the two assassins, back at the attack site, a dramatic scene was unfolding, with Heydrich slumped against his car, a dark blood-stained circle expanding on the upper portion of his uniform. He was quickly recognized, some observers hesitant to get involved, before an off-duty policeman commandeered a small truck to take the wounded man to nearby Bulkova Hospital. After a thorough examination, it was clear that Reinhard Heydrich was seriously wounded. Initially, it appeared as if he had only suffered some minimal cuts and abrasions, but an x-ray indicated that he had a broken rib, a ruptured diaphragm, and numerous small pieces of shrapnel, auto body fragments, and possibly even horsehair from the rear seat upholstery driven deep into his torso, especially his spleen. His internal injuries and bleeding was so severe that he collapsed while he was chasing Gobchik, unable to continue to even walk. A review of Heydrich's security only weeks earlier recommended that armor plating be placed in the car's undercarriage, a suggestion that Heydrich ignored his belief that he was leaving the country soon anyway. Heydrich would need surgery, but typically he insisted that he would only allow a top surgeon from Berlin to operate on him. Told that his condition was too serious to wait that long, he finally acquiesced when an ethnic German, also chairman of surgery at Charles University, agreed to operate. Heydrich's collapsed lung was reinflated, his diaphragm sutured, and most importantly, his spleen was removed, the organ penetrated by both shrapnel and auto-upholstery. Doctors were initially optimistic about his recovery.
It took several hours for the Nazi police machinery in Prague to respond. But when it did, the reaction was both extensive and ferocious. An entire SS battalion was ordered to the hospital. All other patients in the surgical unit were expelled. Armed guards placed in every doorway. A direct phone line set up to Hitler's East Prussian HQ. The scene of the attack was roped off and thoroughly examined by investigators who discovered most notably a live explosive device of British origin, the Sten gun, a woman's bicycle, and the attache cases. Based on the unused British grenade, it was concluded that the assailants were parachuted saboteurs sent by the government in exile and the British. Predictably, the attack reverberated at the highest levels of the Nazi government. Hitler himself demanded that a one million mark reward be offered for information that led to the arrest of the assassins. He also demanded that 10,000 citizens be arrested and executed with a focus on influential community members. All individuals currently imprisoned for political offenses were designated also for immediate liquidation. Carl Hermann Frank was again denied a promotion. The SS General Kurt DeLuga was appointed as temporary Reich's protector. Himmler sent his personal physician to take charge of Heydrich's treatment. Goebbels wrote in his diary that, quote, such an attack could set a precedent if we do not counter it with the most brutal means, unquote. Although Frank did persuade Hitler to back away from the 10,000-victim reprisal, the repression still intensified with a curfew announced from 9 p.m. until 6 a.m., effective immediately. Members of the puppet Czech government proclaimed to the public that if the assassins were not quickly turned in, the entire population could expect dire consequences. Anyone found harboring individuals connected to the assassins or the resistance would be shot. All citizens over the age of 15 were ordered to re-register with the police. Those who did not faced execution. SS and Czech police in Greater Prague, with the aid of over 20,000 Waffen-SS troops, began a house-to-house search beginning immediately on the 27th. Although no prominent parachutists were discovered, others were arrested under the slightest pretext, over 500 in all. Although the mass reprisal was not carried out, over 150 individuals were executed by the first week of June, but no solid leads and certainly no arrests of the commandos occurred. It is not known where exactly Kubish and Gobchik hid in the first days after the assassination, but understanding that it was only a matter of time before they would be located, Jan Zelensky arranged for seven of the fugitive commandos to be hidden in the expansive crypt of the St. Cyril and Methodius Cathedral, Prague's most prominent Czech Orthodox church. An eighth parachutist, Karol Kurda, successfully fled to his family home outside of Prague. In London, perhaps not understanding the extreme pressure now being applied by the Nazis, Benish issued a message of jubilation announcing the attack on the monster Heydrich, calling it an act of revenge, a rejection of Nazi rule, and a symbol to all oppressed people of Europe. Benish also made no mention of parachutists or commandos. He wanted to leave the impression that the attack was carried out by existing resistance elements to impress upon the Allies that he was still the head of a viable fighting force. Both Himmler and Hitler were receiving hourly bulletins on Heydrich's condition 
and the news suddenly turned bleak. A post-operative peritonitis setting in, and with no German access to penicillin, the infection escalated. Conscious enough to converse with a concerned Himmler, who flew to his bedside on June 2nd, Heydrich must have already had a sense of his impending mortality. To the Reichsfuhrer, he quoted a line from one of his father's operas. The world is just a barrel organ, which the Lord God turns himself. We all have to dance to the tune, which is already on the drum. A day later, he suddenly lost consciousness and gradually lapsed into a coma, completely in the grips of septicemia. At 4.30 a.m. on June 4th, he died. Hitler was greatly angered, of course, by Heydrich's demise, but part of his fury was aimed at the foolhardy Reich's protector himself and his insistence on traveling without an armed escort. Quote, Men of importance like Heydrich should know that they are being eternally stalked like game, and there are any number of people just waiting for the chance to kill them, unquote. Hitler then issued a directive ordering all senior military and political personnel to travel in fortified automobiles with an armed escort. Officially, the Nazi government treated Heydrich as a mighty fallen warrior who made the ultimate sacrifice for the fatherland. His body conveyed to Prague Castle, his open coffin surrounded by elaborate funeral torches, lying in state for two days. After a ceremony attended by Heinrich Himmler, Heydrich's flag-covered coffin was slowly paraded through the streets of Prague, hundreds of thousands of the city's inhabitants forced to turn out for the spectacle. Placed on a train, Heydrich was then feted in Berlin, with orations by both Hitler and Himmler. Subsequent internment was at the Invalidenfriedhof, a temporary memorial put in place until something more elaborate could be installed after the end of the war. With the puppet government of the Protectorate led by President Emil Hatscha present in Berlin, Hitler took the opportunity to speak with this group personally. Understanding that the German leader was infuriated by the assassination, Hasha attempted to shift blame, claiming it was really the British who were responsible for the operation. Hitler predictably built himself into a rage, screaming that the Czech people had been nothing but uncooperative, and if they persisted in such activities and did not turn over the assassins immediately, he would not rule out deporting the entire country. Hasha asked at least for the opportunity to return to Prague and address the people to impress upon them the importance of cooperation and the dire consequences that awaited the nation if the assassins were not turned in. Hitler stonily agreed, making it clear that his patience was wearing very thin. Hitler also wished to make it clear that he was not bluffing. 3,000 Czech Jews were immediately placed on trains from Theresienstadt, destined for extermination camps in Poland. Henceforth, in memory of their fallen comrade, the SS officially referred to the deportation of Europe's Jews to the extermination camps as Operation Reinhard. But the Nazis went even further to impress upon Czech Gentiles the consequences of resistance, because the small Czech town of Lidice was near where numerous parachutists were known to have landed because several former residents of the town were known to be serving in the British military, and because the Gestapo had received what turned out to be an erroneous tip that the parachutists were being harbored among the townspeople, the small village was selected for an unprecedented, even for the Nazis, form of reprisal. 
even before Heydrich's state funeral in Berlin concluded on the evening of June 9th, upon hearing the details of Lidice's defiance, Hitler ordered the village to be completely destroyed. At 9.30 at night, the village was sealed off. Men over the age of 15 were separated from the town's women and children, and in groups of 10 were placed against a wall and shot. At midday on the 10th, all 173 men were dead. They were buried in a mass grave dug by concentration camp inhabitants from Theresienstadt. 203 women were placed on an armed transport to the women's concentration facility at Ravensbrück. Although brutal, this was not an extermination camp. 143 of these deportees survived their imprisonment. As many as 105 children were detained, the exact number unclear based on their ultimate fates. Only a handful of these victims were determined to be suitable for Germanization, several eventually murdered in German orphanages. The rest were consigned to the Chelmo extermination camp. Only 17 made it home after the war. But the vengeance did not stop there. Lidice residents working in other nearby towns were also located and executed. There were 13 additional men and women already in Nazi custody. They were executed as well. All animals, both pets and livestock, were slaughtered. All homes and structures were detonated and burnt to the ground. The remnants, including the town cemetery, bulldozed. Eventually, the empty area was surrounded with a barbed wire fence, warning that trespassers would be shot on sight. Two weeks later, when a radio transmitter was discovered in the tiny village of Lezaki, all 33 adult residents there were executed, almost all of their children sent to extermination camps. Although the paratroopers hiding in the crypt of St. Cyril and Methodius were heartened by the death of Heydrich, they were mortified by the reprisals, especially in Lidice, which was boastfully proclaimed by the Nazis in the former Czechoslovakia and internationally, an attempt to intimidate other occupied European territories. The commandos also were wearing out their welcome with the hierarchy of the church, especially the local Czech Orthodox Bishop Garazd, who told of their presence only afterwards, was not comfortable with this situation and indicated that their refuge could not be relied upon permanently. But where were they to go? By June 13th, the Gestapo and other investigative elements had to admit that their vicious approach was not productive. Heinz Ponwitz, the local Gestapo official in charge of the investigation and manhunt, decided that a change of strategy was in order. He got Frank to agree to announce that an amnesty would be provided to any citizen who contributed valuable information about the assassins as long as this occurred before June 18th. If an arrest was not forthcoming by then, 30,000 checks would be detained and executed. Hundreds of tips poured in, including a letter that specifically named the two assassins and members of their family. This letter was signed by one of the parachutists, Carol Curta. Curta had always been held in low esteem by the other commandos, a heavy drinker who was openly critical of Benish and the government in exile as out of touch and willing to sacrifice all of them for the exiled government's own political gain, a perhaps legitimate criticism. Curta was also terrified of the ramifications for his extended family when the, what he believed to be, inevitable capture of the parachutists occurred. His whole extended family would be killed, an eventuality that could only be prevented if he took matters into his own hands. 
When his letter to the local police agency was ignored, he decided on something more dramatic. He returned to Prague and entered the National Gestapo headquarters in the Petchek Palace, intent on providing as much information as he could to obtain immunity. Within minutes, he was sitting in front of Heinz Panwitz, explaining that he could identify the Sten gun wielding assassin as Joseph Gobchik, and the other assailant as probably Jan Kubisch, two individuals unknown to Panwitz. He correctly picked out Gobchik's attache case from a number of similar items, claiming that he observed it while visiting some acquaintances who might have been harboring at least one of the commandos. Shown pictures of some of the other parachutists, he claimed he did not recognize them and denied that he was a parachutist himself. When he was searched, a cyanide capsule routinely issued to secret agents by the SOE was discovered, confirming Ponwitz's suspicion that Kurta knew way more than he was letting on. A preliminary beating ensued. The Czech told that he would be egregiously tortured and his family executed in front of him if he did not immediately come clean. Kurta crumbled, admitting he was a parachutist, knew all of the other individuals in the photographs, and revealed the addresses of every safe house he was aware of. Even under such duress, Kurta was able to convince the Gestapo that he did not know of Kubish's and Gabchik's current hideout, or any of the other commandos for that matter. The Nazis wasted little time. At 5 a.m., they stormed the residences of Jan Zelenka and Aloy and Marie Moravec, the former Kurda correctly identified as a major resistance figure, the latter operators of a resistance safe house where both Gobchik and Kubish were known to have hidden out. Zelenka and his son swallowed cyanide before the police were able to break his door down and were dead within seconds. The Moravics and their son were marched into their apartment hallway, while Gestapo ransacked their apartment and threatened them with guns, screaming, Where are the parachutists? Also threatening their neighbors if they did not reveal the commando's location. In distress, Marie Moravic asked to use her toilet, a request that was granted. She then locked the door to the bathroom and consumed her own cyanide tablet and was also dead before the Gestapo could break down the door. Enraged, the police then conveyed both her husband and son to Gestapo headquarters. Vlastimil Ata Moravec and his father were subjected to excruciating torture for the rest of the day, to no avail. Neither even knew exactly where the parachutists were hiding, but the Gestapo continued the interrogation. After plying Otto with alcohol and then forcing him to look at his mother's severed head floating in an aquarium, the youngster broke down, racking his brain to reveal the only kernel of information he had left. He remembered that his mother told him that if he was ever in any danger, he was to go to the St. Cyril and Methodius Church and ask the priest there to help him. By then, it was midnight of the 18th of June. Ponwitz spent much of the early morning meticulously planning for the possibility that the fugitives were in the church. Instead of sending a squad of policemen to immediately investigate the location, he prepared a military operation that would overwhelm any possible escape or breakout attempt. At approximately 4 a.m., after every manhole and sewage aperture in the vicinity was secured, 700 Waffen-SS personnel converged on the church, soldiers stationed on every adjoining rooftop. A double ring of roadblocks was established on all streets leading to the church, any access emptied of pedestrians or observers. At 4.15 a.m., 
a small group of Gestapo personnel accompanied by Ponwitz and a squad of heavily armed SS then approached the main entrance of the church and demanded entrance. The Nazis were intent on capturing the parachutists alive to demonstrate that Britain was mainly responsible for Heydrich's death and to terrorize the Czech population with a public display of the captives, a show trial, an execution. A caretaker let the group in without any immediate incident, the investigators finding nothing on the ground floor of the church. When asked about access through an iron gate that led to the second floor choir loft, the janitor claimed he did not have a key. The grate was swiftly destroyed by rifle butts, and the SS began climbing the narrow winding passageway to the upper floor. A hand grenade bounced down the stairway, exploding in the vicinity of the attackers as gunfire also commenced from the loft. The Gestapo withdrew. More Waffen-SS poured into the church, and again an assault began on the passageway and the loft itself. For two hours, three of the commandos fought off both SS and the church and machine guns firing through the now-broken tall windows of the cathedral. The chaotic attack sent bullets ricocheting everywhere and ignited tapestries hanging from the altar before the attackers withdrew requested that the exterior shooting be halted and returned, this time fighting their way up the stairwell with numerous grenades. Suddenly, the shooting stopped. Two of the parachutists, Bublik and Opalka, were found dead from self-inflicted wounds, and a third, Jan Kubisch, was unconscious and dying from ingesting a cyanide capsule. Rushed to a hospital, he died shortly thereafter. The Nazis suspected that more men were elsewhere in the cathedral. Having located a priest assigned to the church, Ponwitz threatened him with death until this individual, Vladimir Petrek, admitted that four more men were in the crypt. The main entrance to the crypt behind the altar had been bricked up, and a large stone slab was placed over the other smaller crypt entryway. The only other access was through a narrow opening leading to the exterior of the church, essentially for ventilation. Not wanting to instigate another mass suicide, Ponwitz attempted to reason with the remaining commandos inside. Announcements via loudspeaker blared that the defenders would be treated as POWs if they surrendered. Petrek and even Carol Kurta were sent up to the narrow opening, hoping to induce a peaceful conclusion. Upon hearing Kurta's voice, one of the defenders let loose with gunshots and yelled that they would never surrender. Ponwitz then tried having the city fire department flood the crypt, jamming large fire hoses down the vent and releasing hundreds of gallons of water a minute, as well as tear gas into the crypt, to no avail. The hoses were pushed out by the defenders, who also hurled Molotov cocktails at the firemen. The stalemate dragged on for six hours. Carl Hermann Frank now on the scene, impatient that this show of defiance would make the Nazis appear weak and ineffective. He demanded an immediate full-scale attack by the Waffen-SS, an order that surely would result in the suicide of the remaining commandos. As preparations were made to blow open the bricked-up main entry to the crypt, four gunshots were heard from the church's lower interior. Within minutes, a soldier was sent into the church to investigate. He found the bodies of the remaining parachutists, including Gobchik, dead from self-inflicted gunshot wounds to the temple. The bodies were quickly dragged out of the crypt and into the street, 
where Curta identified all four of the men by name and fingered Gobchik specifically as the other assassin of Hydric. Despite his eventual cooperation, Vladimir Petrik was arrested because of his initial aid to the fugitives. Several other church officials, including the Bishop Garaged, were also detained in the Gestapo jail at the Pechek prison. The Bishop, Petrek, and two other individuals associated with St. Cyril's were given a show trial on September 3, 1942, and executed the next day by firing squad. Investigations and reprisals continued even after the death of Kubish and Gobchik. The extended families of Jan Kubish and Joseph Valchik and any individual who had provided aid or sanctuary to the assassins and their families were rounded up and arrested. Because Gobchik was from the now Nazi puppet state of Slovakia and the Nazis were satisfied with this region's level of cooperation and did not wish to upset the Slovakian populace, his relatives were not harmed. Eventually, this entire imprisoned contingent was transported to Mauthausen concentration camp. On October 24, 1942, 257 collaborators were executed by pistol shot to the back of the head. This included Ada Maravec and his father, and the two girlfriends of Gobchik and Kubish, Anna Malinova and Maria Kovornikova. It even included Bredislav and Emily Bauman, the husband and wife that initially aided the two commandos when they were found in the quarry shortly after their parachute jump in late 1941. In a strange political twist, Edvard Benish never subsequently acknowledged the role of Gobchik and Kubish or even the Czech government in exile's role in Heydrich's assassination. With the immediate aftermath of the attack, the Nazis attempted to exploit Benish and the exile's willingness to send men to their deaths in a fruitless attempt to resist the all-powerful Nazi occupation. Benish also did not want to admit that the operation ultimately instigated the complete liquidation of any formal Czech resistance and resulted in the deaths of many innocent people. It is estimated that the Nazis murdered at least 5,000 individuals as a result of the Heydrich assassination. With the end of World War II, Benish regained his position as president of Czechoslovakia, but his failing health and Stalinist coordination with the powerful Czech Communist Party ultimately resulted in 1948 in a communist government aligned with Moscow. Neither Benish or the communist regime ever mentioned the commandos and the mission to kill Reinhard Heydrich. After the communist government takeover in 1948, Benish passed away, having been seriously ill for quite some time. There was some small satisfaction over the fates of high-level Nazis involved in the occupation of Czechoslovakia, especially Karl Hermann Frank and Kurt de Luga, who were convicted of war crimes and hanged in 1946. Karol Kurta collaborated with the Nazis for the remainder of the war, but was eventually captured by partisans, found guilty of treason, and hanged on April 29, 1947. The ranking officer on the scene in charge of the Lidice massacre, Horst Boma, disappeared at the end of the war and was declared legally dead in 1954, most likely a suicide. However, it was not until 2010 that a museum and memorial discussing Operation Anthropoid was installed in the basement crypt of St. Cyril and Methodius Church. Over time, the profile of the remarkable heroism and sacrifice not only of Gobchik and Kubish, 
but the other commandos and the network of resistance members who sheltered and aided them during their mission has increased both in the Czech Republic and internationally, especially after the release of a Hollywood film about the incident in 2016. The killing of Reinhard Heydrich was the only successful assassination of a prominent Nazi government official carried out during World War II. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about Operation Anthropoid. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books The Killing of Reinhard Heydrich by Callum MacDonald and Hitler's Hangman by Robert Gerworth. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Subscribe to my YouTube page at Noblesse Oblige, and also rate us on iTunes. If you have the time, please leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. <laughs>